it's Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that have returned honor to to journalism. Julian is a truth teller, and that's what has upset the those who continue what Goebbels called the big lie. Episode number six of Randy Critical Live on the Fly, Assange's Countdown to Freedom in cooperation with Covert Action Magazine, which is uh, edited by uh, Chris Agee, who was the son of the uh, original CIA whistleblower, and that, of course, is the great late uh, Philip Agee. And we're going to do a whole show on Philip Agee uh, down the pike here uh, because, um, you know, the guy was a whistleblower, and, and Chris and, and his family had to like move around the world, and they were like constantly being harassed by by the government. And so, Chris will be in here along with uh, the one of the original founders of that uh, magazine, Lou Wolf. All right, so um, this is uh, we are in the studios, by the way, of nycpodcasting.com, nycpodcasting.com in the East Village. Uh, the historic East Village. It's still a beautiful place, just real close to uh, Tompkins Square Park, uh, the uh, site of a lot of activism over the decades. And what else can I say um, here? Uh, I want to thank Anonymous Scandinavia right now because he worked his tush off uh, the last couple of days preparing for this very challenging show today. We have Dr. Cornell West, the legendary Dr. Cornell West, uh, making his first appearance with me in three years. So uh, he, we talked about Assange three years ago, and uh, he is uh, definitely in big demand, and he's working with the Sanders campaign. Uh, he's a great voice, a great activist. He spent some time in prison, with, uh, in jail with him one day. Uh, and uh, we have uh, Max Blumenthal coming up, and then we have uh, the, the award-winning journalist Max Blumenthal and uh, Ben Wisner from the ACLU. Uh, we'll be talking to him. And so it's a, a jam-packed show. And I'm sitting here with uh, the Courage Foundation's executive director, Nathan Fuller. Uh, the um, Courage Foundation is the foremost uh, organization uh, for whistleblowers, and particularly right now with the Assange case. Welcome, uh, Nathan. Thanks, Randy. Good to be here. All right. So you have uh, any uh, updates? We'll talk about events at the end. Any updates uh, right now? Oh, besides... Next week on the 15th, we definitely got to talk about the 15th. And we'll talk about that with Max Blumenthal, who will be there, right? So yep. give us a little update on what's happening in London. Yeah, so that, by the way, will be just at defend.wikileaks.org slash events. Um, and yeah, we'll talk about that later. Um, so Assange has one more a little court appearance in London at Westminster Magistrates Court on the 19th, I believe. But that's just a, a very... Uh, it's just a technicality, really. It's just a small appearance uh, before his full extradition hearing on February 24th. And that'll be at the court at Belmarsh, uh, which is in southeast London. That's a long way from London. I'm planning to be there, by the way, and do some special uh, programming from there. So um, I'll see you there. I'll see you there. I know there's a big event on the 22nd with uh, MIA and Roger Waters 
And there's a demonstration by a lot of these uh, wonderful uh, uh, supporters of Assange uh, that have a, been having a vigil for like seven or eight years. I've been at that vigil line. And there's one in New York City every Thursday at right there at Grand Central at 430 Big, uh, big demonstration there every Thursday. Right now, it's going on or going on today at some point. No, it's already over. Yes. All right. So um, let's see. We're going to play. Um, we were going to play this clip. Let's forget about that. We're going to do something different. We're going to actually play. Today, we're dedicating this, uh, this show or the music. We always have a music theme uh, to Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson. Uh, one of the uh, greatest, uh, not just entertainers, but activists and intellectuals um, who paid the price for standing up against the, the, the endemic racism in this country uh, and uh, imperialism. And so, um, I mean, they're not cheerful tunes, I must tell you. They're not cheerful tunes, but uh, he was a great protest singer and just one of the greatest. He was a great football player. He did everything. So we're going to uh, play a tune. We're going to call up uh, Max Blumenthal. And uh, we'll be back after we play this wonderful uh, piece on Joe Hill that he sang in front of these Scottish miners in 1949. <laughs> Got like a huge response. And he went to Australia, the Australian miners. But here he is uh, singing the ballad of Joe, Lou, uh, Joe Hill. And we'll be back with uh, Max Blumenthal. Dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. Alive as you and me, says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I ain't dead, says Joe, but I ain't dead. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill. Went on to organize. All right, so that was uh, the uh, great uh, Paul Robeson. He did that in front of thousands of miners in uh, Edinburgh back in 1949. And he traveled around the world, and he was well-received. Standing ovations, Australia. Only place that he couldn't work and get those kind of ovations from workers was in Peekskill and some other areas in the U.S. Um, and he was totally blacklisted in the 50s. Uh, so now we're going to turn our attention to um, really, uh, really one of the finest uh, journalists uh, around, uh, investigative journalists, uh, Max Blumenthal, who uh, is the award-winning journalist and the uh, author of a million books. In fact, Max writes books faster than I read them. Seriously, he is the um, editor of The Gray Zone, and he co-hosts a show called uh podcast called what's the name of it there it's called moderate moderate rebels Rebels with uh, ben norton so it's a great show i watched the two of you talk about your arrest the other day uh, a couple of months back i think right after i last saw you when i was in uh dc for something i went to some uh, protest 
and there was, I think it was at the Venezuelan embassy. And the next thing I know, uh, something happens to you and you're in jail for a couple of days. Uh, I hope it was a good experience. Uh, you know, it was definitely an eye-opening experience. Yeah. And, you know, you're someone who's dealt with prison issues like you have knows how it is in there. Well, it's like a black box or like making sausage. You know, uh, the end product for you and for people like me, when you spend a day or two in jail, it's a terrible experience going through it. But the knowledge that you get is invaluable. Would you agree with that? Well, you really see it's a front row seat to the new Jim Crow. And you really see how people are just jailed and processed through and turned into profit uh, for basically the crime of being poor. Right. Yes. Um, and it's, 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 no one gets a call to their lawyer. Nobody, no one has constitutional rights. You're chained together for half the time. Then you're shackled, you're put in cages. And we see a lot of these images of uh, children being caged at the border who are migrants, but you have every day in DC central booking and in New York central booking cities around the country, you have 50 to 100 black men chained together inside a cage waiting for hours in yeah. like extremely cold temperatures. And these people are voiceless and it's just something we accept as normal now. Right. Well, you know, I did it for, uh, you know, many times uh, back during Occupy Wall Street. I got arrested uh, one time uh, and was up in the Bronx Central Booking, which was the worst, man, really. And you're really at the mercy of these guards uh, that are there. And you're you're in there. It's almost like, uh, you know, a cattle feedlot. You know, everyone's jammed together. It's freezing. And they give you a piece of bread. And there's one toilet that's open. It really is a disgusting uh uh, you know, 24, 36-hour experience. And a lot of people go through it all the time. You're right. You know, uh, Assange is going through that every single day and has been uh, almost for a year at Belmore's uh, prison. And that's the subject of uh, today's show is, uh, as it has been for the last five weeks, It's uh, the name of the show is Assange Countdown to Freedom. And Max, uh, you're coming up here, I believe, on the 14th. Uh, you're going to come to some party on the 14th, and uh, you're going to be speaking on the 15th at this event being held. Where is it? It's at CUNY Law School. That's in Queens. In Queens. All right. So that's the 15th. Max, you're coming all the way up from D.C. Why is it so important that you show up at this event on behalf of Assange? Well, it's important to take every opportunity to show solidarity with Julian Assange as a fellow journalist and publisher, but also um, to really make people aware of what the stakes are and to explain the importance of what he did to you know, pretty much any audience I can find. So, you know, I think there's going to be uh, a really informative panel of people who understand the law, understand international law, and who've been advocating for Julian for years. So it's an honor to be a part of it. Yeah, well, we're really looking forward to seeing you there. Um, you've been following Assange uh, for a long time. Um, let me just uh, begin uh, to ask you about some of the publications that uh, he's put out uh, over the years. And let's begin uh, with the war logs. How important, how significant to you were the, the war logs and, and for journalism in general? Well, the reason he is in Belmarsh right now it's, I mean, I, I wonder if you if you went around and you actually polled people in the media about why he's in prison. 
I don't even know if you could get a clear answer. You get a variety of answers. But the obvious reason that he's in there is because he told the public how the empire works. He embarrassed the empire. And there are so many, I mean, there are the war logs. There are the, you know, the digital murder where you see Reuters stringers in Baghdad being assassinated and murdered by a U.S. helicopter gunship. You know, that's the most well-known of the leaks. Um, the Chelsea Manning, who's also in jail, uh, released. But, you know, there are so many um, files on WikiLeaks that were State Department cables that have been really useful to me as a journalist in helping to explain U.S. regime change operations in Latin America. Give us an and example. So, so, you know, a, a, one of the, the forgotten leaks that's really uh, critical on, on WikiLeaks is the Stratfor documents that were provided by Jeremy Hammond, who's also in prison and who's also being tormented. He actually had his prison sentence extended um, even after he completed a uh, drug rehabilitation program, which normally allows prisoners to knock a few months off their sentence. Um, his or years off their sentence, and his has been extended uh, just to torture him. But one of the Stratfor leaks that was amazing to me was this document that was like a regime change blueprint put together for Juan Guaido's group in Venezuela. Um, it was this is you know before Guaido is well known, but you know all the guys who are trained by the U.S. regime change oper uh, you know operators funded by USAID and the National Endowment for Democracy. And this document was put together by someone named Sergei Popovich, who was the head of a group called OTPOR um, that was basically consulting with the CIA, going around the world and training youth activists to topple governments the U.S. wanted out. And he told them that you know, he believed that in Venezuela, the electricity plant would go out, the main electricity plant, due to um, low water levels at the dam and that they should take advantage of national blackouts to create havoc and chaos around the country in order to drive out Hugo Chavez, who was president at the time. And this document was really important for me because as the coup was failing against Venezuela that Donald Trump launched last year, I think this was in March, things were just kind of not going very well for the opposition in Guaido. Marco Rubio got up on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, during a, a hearing on Venezuela that he was chairing, and he predicted that Venezuela was going, go, going to go through a period of suffering that no other country had gone through. And two hours later, the main electricity plant in Venezuela at the Guri Dam went out, and Venezuela experienced an unprecedented national blackout, and Juan Guaido was calling for national protests um, and blaming the government for the blackout. The government claimed that it experienced an electromagnetic pulse attack and a cyber attack, and the whole country had to pull together to get the lights back on and to manage their daily lives without electricity. You know, you saw people cooking their meals with, um, you know, uh, in the streets of Caracas with barbecues, with wood. They've, you know, pulled from trees. Um, you saw people walking miles to work because for a while the subway wasn't working. But this seemed to be part of actually a plan that had been charted 
by people who'd been trying to topple the government in Venezuela for years. And we, we wouldn't have known that if it weren't for these Stratfor leaks, uh, we, if it weren't for brave people like Jeremy Hammond, and if it wasn't for the publishing apparatus that Julian Assange had set up. Um, so now Hammond, again, is in jail. Julian is in jail. Venezuela is still under attack. But we know so much about that, um, thanks to these brave people. Yeah, the, the cable gate. There was a lot to cable gate uh, that we have forgotten. I think that it's between cable gate and the war logs that have uh, driven this uh, Justice Department to uh, be hell-bent on getting him over here. And I think it's all of the uh, you know agencies of the security state that want him out of there and silence him and put him away, and then they're going to impose these Sam. So I'm going to uh, play a little uh, a little clip for you. This is this is him, and it's 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 a recording I got this morning. This happened in October of 2018 uh, when Linda Moreno started to put the screws on him. Uh, do you have that? Uh, can we play that for Max? It's just about 30 or 40 seconds long. What is occurring is not about this protocol. Uh, what, ha what has occurred uh, since uh, March uh, 27, uh, March 28, uh, is about something much more serious. It is the Ecuadorian government uh, positioning itself in order to violate the asylum. Positioning itself in terms of its public discourse, uh, gagging me in order to uh, rebut uh, the allegations that is making it public that it is uh, apparently deliberately leaking out to the, the press uh, select, selective, scandalous uh, material. It's all about setting the ground in order to violate the asylum, to hand me over uh, to the United States. Well, 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 that came just a few weeks after this letter that was sent from a representative uh, of New York from the Bronx and Yonkers, uh, Elliot Engel, sent a letter to Lennon Moreno. And it was basically, have you seen that letter? It's an extortion letter. And just to give you a quote out of it, it says, it is clear, this is in the body of that letter, it is clear that Mr. Assange remains a dangerous criminal and a threat to global security, and he should be brought to justice. This is from a Democrat from New York. What do you make of that, Max? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's pretty strong indications that the IMF loan that Lenin Moreno was begging for was contingent on him handing over Julian Assange. Um, pretty much all the screws were turned on this weak figure in Ecuador in order to get Julian Assange in Belmarsh prison. And, uh, you know, I think it's really unfortunate when you look at the results of the UK election, you now have another poodle um, in Whitehall who's going to be uh, inclined to possibly abide by a extradition order from the U.S. that could bring Julian Assange here and see him tortured as Chelsea Manning was, right. um, you know, subjected to harsh interrogations. This is a complete violation of international law. And so we need to, we need to, you know, in New York, 
we need to remind the U.S. public that they need to resist this extradition order of someone who's not even a U.S. citizen who's in jail for the crime of publishing. And one more thing I want to point out is that this group, the Committee to Protect Journalists, which I think is based in New York and in here in D.C., they are corporate. They're this corporate-funded, supposed press freedom group that's connected to the U.S. government in various ways. They deliberately and explicitly left Julian Assange off of their list of jailed journalists this year, and instead they gave their big award to coup leaders in Nicaragua who have been funded by the U.S. government and took them to a meeting with Mike Pence. So all of the press, the major press freedom organizations, they've completely fallen down on the job. They've sold out Julian Assange. The media that used to rely on him and Cablegate leaks and everything that came out of WikiLeaks, they've sold him out because, you know, big, bad Julian Assange leaked John Podesta or revealed John Podesta's emails and they believe that he handed the election to Trump. So it's, it's, it's up to the rest of us to be advocates for a persecuted journalist who is a political prisoner. Well, that's that's the point here. This is the reason why uh, you have liberals in this country not out there supporting him and just the opposite. It's like they're supporting Barr and Trump's persecution of him, ironically, uh, because this is putting the camel's nose into the tent. Once they get him, don't these journalists know that they'll be next? Uh, they, you know, they see themselves as part of a club and Julian Assange didn't play by the club's rules, so they just simply decided he wasn't a journalist. And all of these, all of this dirt has been thrown at him. You know, it's classic psyops. He was accused of rape. All of those charges have been dropped. They weren't and even. They the were allegations. And by the way, we had the guy on yeah. last week, uh, Nils Melzer, who speaks Swedish, and he looked at all of the the documents, and there was never by those women, allegations of rape. This is something that, you're right, it is a PSYOP. This is um, a COINTELPRO type of uh, operation against Julian Assange. You got that, and then everyone's upset about the DNC leaks. Instead of being mad at Julian Assange, shouldn't they be upset with Hillary Clinton and Donna Brazile and Debbie Wasserman Schultz for rigging that primary? Yeah, well, we're seeing it happen again. <laughs> I mean, in real time, another primary is being rigged. And uh, I hope that someone will come along and show us what really happened behind the scenes because it'll be, I bet, 10 times more embarrassing and revealing uh, to the public than what we learned about 2016. I mean, what just happened in Iowa is an atrocity. And I don't accept the official explanation of quality checks and just the, some malfunctioning app. Something's going on. And today, today, Bernie Sanders is declaring victory. And Tom Perez, the DNC chair, is calling for a revote or a re-canvassing. It's not pretty obvious something's going on. They Again, don't want him to win. I mean, obviously, they don't want Bernie Sanders to be... They don't uh, want him to win, but they don't want us to know what they're doing. And because Julian Assange revealed what they were doing behind the scenes, which I think is good for democracy. I think it's good for America. I think more democracy is better. More transparency is better. Because he revealed that, he's being punished.
He's being punished. He's being punished not for that. The indictment against per him. Per se, not for that per se, but... That's why you're getting the lack of support because people are pointing right. a finger at him. That's not the reason why she lost. He didn't send her a map of the U.S. that excluded Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania where she avoided uh, campaigning. He didn't send her that map. So there are a lot of reasons why she lost. Let me ask you, Max, and ask you, Max, if, if you were in that situation, you have these documents, you can either put them out there or not put them out there. As a journalist, ethically, what are you supposed to do? Well, I would say that uh, if you are a journalist and a source comes to you who's reliable and they reveal the, tr the truth about scandal that's in the public interest, even if it puts you at risk, that's the line of work that you decided to do and you are really a soldier for the truth. And in many ways, you take on a holy obligation to sacrifice yourself for the public good. Glenn Greenwald did that in Brazil, and his indictment for him revealing the phony car wash investigation of Lula da Silva, which wound up wound the main opposition leader in Brazil in prison, was simply a political persecution. And his indictment is a blueprint of the indictment of Julian Assange. Julian Assange's indictment claims that he instructed Chelsea Manning and gave instructions on how to supposedly hack into uh, computer systems. And this is what uh, Glenn Greenwald is accused of. There's absolutely no evidence for any of this. Right. So it starts with Julian Assange, but it clearly doesn't end there. And other journalists are being persecuted in the same way with the same blueprint. Are you, are you fearful? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I wasn't taking this seriously. I thought that this would go away. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it's imminent right now. Uh, do you, uh, <laughs> I mean, what do you think if this happens uh, about journalism I mean, to yourself and people like Aaron Mate and other great uh, progressive journalists out there, investigative journalists, uh, at the gray zone and other uh, progressive um, and beyond progressive, I don't even use the word progressive, honest uh, brokers of journalism, uh, what will happen to you? I, I mean, w would you like think you could possibly be next? Well, it's already happened to me and we were talking about it at the top that I was jailed for two days and I faced a false assault, assault charge by a member of the Venezuelan opposition who just made up, just completely fabricated an incident and claimed that I assaulted her and she was probably, it, it was pretty clear she was being coached by Venezuelan opposition activists in Washington whose leadership is funded directly by the U.S. You've seen their main leader, Carlos Vecchio, um, in the White House today. And as we speak, they're meeting with Nancy Pelosi. The reason they went after me is because we at the Gray Zone have been exposing them and the regime shenanigans more than probably any other publication in the U.S. and doing a lot of damage to their narrative. And so the D.C. police just acted on this fabricated claim, came to my house, got went into my house, threatening to break my door down and hauled me out into a paddy wagon, took me to jail. And I didn't know this was five months after the allegation was apparently made. So, yeah, I mean, it, it happened and it can happen again, but we just... I think our greatest defense um, is publicity. And by that, I mean that the public is listening, the public's participating. 
um, the public is supporting us. And so um, those of us who are in alternative media, we just have to kind of stay out there and show solidarity with each other. So that's what I'm going to be doing when I come to New York on the 15th. Well, that's great. Um, Julian, is, Julian, Julian is someone who's made my work possible. You know, I, I uh, he's made a lot of people's work possible, and everybody has uh, in mainstream media has picked up on on all of his uh, work. Uh, you know, I want to get back to Venezuela for a minute, and one of the reasons you were down there, you and Aaron Mate and Ben Norton and um, Anya Parapil were all down there, and that stuff you guys did down there was great. It was really great work. That's the way journalism journalism is supposed to work, and I believe that the rest of you was payback time for that. They certainly don't want that kind of information that you got down there in Venezuela to be spread nationally? No, they don't. And uh, they are also trying to, you know, use character assassination tactics. So if you, you know, see what's said about me or us on social media, it's, you know, we're Russian agents, we're Venezuelan agents, um, just a campaign of psychological, just a psyop campaign of lies that, uh, is being completely it's just so obviously coordinated and it's this and it's the same narrative that's been deployed against julian so it's really i mean in this era anyone who kind of steps out of line on foreign policy in a consequential way is going to be branded as some kind of russian asset um and that's another that's something else we're, we're facing it's not just you know the threat of physical imprisonment um or you know physical harm, but just being um, assassinated in the media without any recourse. Um, And then beyond that, we're also seeing social media censorship and suppression where accounts are being arbitrarily removed. Um, A citizen journalist in Venezuela who's a friend of ours, who's contributed to the gray zone, Orlenis Ortiz, um, whose Twitter account was really useful in showing daily life in Venezuela and busting the kind of narrative of the mainstream corporate U.S. media, her Twitter account was removed arbitrarily for the second time, um, and it has everything to do with the fact that she's showing another side, an inconvenient side of reality. Well, they certainly uh, want to uh, have regime change in Venezuela, uh, while at the same time uh, Trump says he's an isolationist, and we've seen what has happened in Brazil. Where do, you, where do you think some of the spots, if Julian were able, he's been totally disabled the last year, almost two years, uh, coming up in, uh, I think, uh, at the end of March. Where do you think some of the hot spots uh, he would be focused on right now, the kind of journalism, journalism uh, that he does, where would they uh, be putting uh, their uh, eye on? Well, the, the, the question is, WikiLeaks is just kind of a publishing mechanism that, allows it's very user friendly um you know you just go on wikileaks and you can search any keyword and every document with that keyword will come up in a really user friendly fashion um julian's sort of the mastermind behind that and he's also someone who was able to verify and vet documents he's never published a false document or anything not one uh, not one fabricated not one not one um so, you know, that's a testament to his, uh, his, you know, his credibility. And so the question is, where, where would the leaks come from? Where would the whistleblowers come from? And right now, WikiLeaks um, is involved in a really important series of whistleblower disclosures about the um, organization 
for the prohibition of chemical weapons and how that organization was politicized by pro-regime change elements around a staged chemical attack in Douma, Syria in April 2018, where the U.S. and its allies actually launched missiles on Syria based on a phony chemical attack that was completely staged. And two members of the fact-finding mission who actually went to Douma and analyzed what happened there from the OPCW have come out and said the organization was politicized, the attack appeared to have been staged, and we can't take it seriously. And WikiLeaks provided them with a platform for releasing documents, internal documents, showing how the process was politicized in order to basically validate the, the lie, to validate the lie that the U.S. assault was predicated on. To make it more simple, it's just another Iraq WMD scandal where we went, were taken to war based on a complete lie. Right, and they certainly don't want those lies uh, to be exposed, uh, and that's the reason they're going after him. I mean, he definitely poses a big danger, and WikiLeaks poses a big danger to the way they do business, to the to the dirty wars, uh, to the, the torture, uh, to the corruption, whether it be here or international corruption. Uh, they uh, have been a godsend to uh, journalists around the world. And uh, Max, you'll be here on the 15th. I'm really looking forward to seeing you. Uh, can you uh, just give us um, any closing uh, remarks um, about uh, uh, Julian Assange's plight and persecution before we go? Well, I've actually heard from sources who are in contact with people he'd been in prison with who've come in and out that he was not in the best shape. And this kind of corroborates what Nils Melzer, the UN rapporteur has been saying, what he said on your show, um, that he's experiencing a kind of not just physical torment, but psychological torture. And it was thanks to the other prisoners who organized to get Julian out of solitary confinement in this maximum security prison. Um, that his conditions have improved somewhat. But I think all of this is due to public outrage and public organizing. So it's just important that we know what the stakes are and see what's being set up for the rest of us and just continue to organize. Again, that's why I'm going to be in New York on the 15th at City College. We're looking forward to that. Uh, and at CUNY Law School. At CUNY Law School. CUNY Law School. All right. So, um, so um, grayzone.com, is that, uh, it's grayzone.com? Yeah, you can see all our work at thegrayzone.com, and we have some new material about the Iowa caucus that I think. All right. It's a great site. Very interesting. It's, it's really a, a great site, and uh, grayzone.com. Uh, Max, uh, uh, my hat goes off to you and your coworkers there. And looking forward to seeing you uh, in uh, about 10 days or less. Uh, Thanks a lot, Randy. Looking forward to it. Max Blumenthal. Max Blumenthal. So uh, we're going to play a little tune here, and uh, we'll come back uh, with uh, an attorney for Ed Snowden, uh, who is with the ACLU, uh, Ben Weisner. Ben Weisner will be joining us in just one minute. Summertime, and 
Summertime, summertime uh, from Porgy and Bess, uh, as sung by uh, the great uh, Paul Robeson, one of the great talents. Uh, we're going to be playing more of his uh, music uh, over the next 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Um, wow, we have uh, someone that just came in from the other side of the world, uh, really a guy I respect a lot. Uh, he's the uh, director of the ACLU's uh, Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Uh, he is also uh, the attorney, the lead attorney for uh, the great uh, NSA whistleblower, Ed Snowden. And uh, I got to see a video of him last week uh, in D.C. where he uh, did a panel with a wonderful uh, uh, group, including Barry Pollack, uh, Mr. Assange's lead attorney here. Welcome, Ben Wisner. Randy, it's nice to chat with you. Yes, I'm sitting here with... Um, with uh, my good friend and a uh, good friend of this show and kind of like the co-pilot, and that is Nathan Fuller from the uh, Courage Foundation. Um, and uh, so we're both going to ask you some questions. I want to begin, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was thinking that uh, this whole thing is a nightmare and not true, but it looks like it's more and more imminent that not just possible that Assange could be extradited to this country. I've been in denial about it. Are you in denial about it? No, look, I think it's possible, but I also think that there's a lot of work that can still be done to prevent it from happening. Um, I think he's got extraordinary world-renowned lawyers in the United Kingdom who are fighting that extradition. Uh, I think that there's still a chance that that court system, especially their high court, uh, will give him a fair shake. And look, this is an important precedent. Um, uh, it seems to me that charges under the Espionage Act are the definition of a political crime. Traditionally, countries do not extradite uh, those who are accused of political crimes, crimes against the state rather than against uh, other citizens or individuals. And, and so, look, we're going to spend the next month and maybe years uh, doing what we can to prevent that extradition from taking place. Yes. Uh, well, let me ask you this, uh, Ben Weisner, uh, the Espionage Act. Why is it being applied to a journalist? And isn't this the first time a journalist has been charged under the Espionage Act? You know, there may have been cases from during World War I um, when journalists were charged under some theory, but certainly in the modern history of the Espionage Act, um, there has never been anybody prosecuted for publishing truthful information. Um, you know, not until the 1980s did we even have anyone successfully prosecuted for leaking information to the press, as opposed to, say, selling it to a foreign enemy or turning it over as a spy. Uh, so the Espionage Act doctrine, as we understand it, is really just from the last several decades. And no, this is the first time um, that the Justice Department has crossed that line and charged someone not with leaking the information from the inside, but with publishing the information from the outside. Yes. Hey, hey Ben, good to talk to you. Um, 
So, Hi, Nathan. How are you? Hey. So the uh, Edward Snowden has talked about why he has not wanted to come back to the U.S. and he's talked about the fact that the Espionage Act precludes a, a free trial, a fair trial, because it doesn't allow him to properly defend himself. Just wondering if you could talk about what a extradition and then prosecution would mean precedent-wise for someone like Snowden. Well, look. So, so the the Snowden case and the Assange case are are distinct. Uh, I think you know, in some ways, it would be much more extreme for the prosecution of Assange to go forward because he's not someone who even arguably owed any duty uh, to the United States government to protect its secrets. But in the Snowden case, um, what we've learned over the last few decades. Um, is that the Espionage Act, as the courts have interpreted it, is basically a strict liability offense. What I mean by that is that what Edward Snowden has already said to the world that he's done, which is provide secret U.S. government documents to journalists, is the complete offense and there is no defense. There's no distinction under the doctrine between providing information to journalists who then go on to win the Pulitzer Prize for public interest journalism and selling the same information for personal profit to a foreign government. Um, the only elements of the offense that the government is required to establish are that you provided national defense information to someone who was not authorized to receive it. Uh, and that person could be the president of China or it can be Bart Gelman of the Washington Post. And in fact, the government has argued in court filings in recent cases that it is more damaging to the United States if insiders give this information to journalists than if they sell it to foreign governments. Because if they sell it to Iran, only one country sees it. But if they give it to the New York Times, the whole world gets to see it. Uh, and so what we have said is that if Snowden came back to the United States, it would not be for trial, it would be for sentencing. Uh, because he would not be allowed to argue to a jury that the information that he disclosed to journalists, in fact, resulted in positive change and changes in the law. He wouldn't be able to tell a jury that um, former Attorney General Eric Holder, in fact, said that there were positive outcomes from these leaks, that President Obama said that the debate that they engendered made us stronger. Uh, and nor would he be able to argue that the information should not have been classified in the first place, uh, even though many government officials since then have said um, that much of the material that Snowden provided should have been declassified and released to the public earlier. So it really would be a farce. Um, it would be uh, you know, him showing up for a proceeding in which the court just decided how long he should go to prison for. So pretty easy to see why he's staying in Moscow right now. Um, but for those journalists... Well, right. I think, you know, and for those, for those who think, um, you know, of all places where he should be, why is he there? Um, I, I wonder where they think he should be. Right now, there's two places in the world where he can be. Uh, the first is where he is, and the second is in a maximum security prison cell. And if you have an option C for us, I would love to hear it. <laughs> I would right. as well. Um, but what about for journalists here in the U.S.? Um, what would this kind of conviction uh, mean for them, and what kind of precedent would that set? And this, I, I, I assume you're talking about Assange. If Assange were extradited uh, and yeah. convicted. Look, this is really threatening. Um, you know, the Obama administration had no love for Julian Assange. <laughs> um, and I don't need to uh, tell you what the evidence is of that. It's very, very clear. And yet they concluded that uh, there would be no way for them in principle to charge Julian Assange for publishing classified documents um, without, in a sense, endangering the same work that's done by 
U.S. newspapers like the Washington Post, the New York Times, that they couldn't come up with a way to distinguish um, what Assange did that would, uh, you know, in principle be different. And that's because national security journalism, investigative journalism, really is a criminal conspiracy, if you think about it, right? (laughs) These journalists are trying to persuade government insiders to commit felonies in order to educate the American public. Now, it's a vital conspiracy, right? Thomas Jefferson said he would rather have newspapers without a government than a government without newspapers, right? We absolutely need the public to be informed about things that the government would prefer to have secret. But each time that happens, uh, each time these secrets are published in newspapers, it's because somebody has committed a felony, uh, and under U.S. law, a very, very serious felony. Um, It has been our tradition that we do not charge journalists, right? We, We will, you know, starting with Ellsberg, we will bring charges against people on the inside um, who violated their contracts of secrecy. We'll bring criminal charges against them. Um, but never before um, has our government said, we're actually going to bring felony charges against one of these publishers who has convinced a source to provide this information. So um, let's be really clear, right? The, the Attorney General of the United States right now, um, Barr, um, has said that he can imagine circumstances in which uh, he would prosecute journalists. Um, the Assange prosecution, if it's successful, uh, will set a precedent that will uh, immediately threaten and perhaps eventually punish um, many, many other journalists. Uh, I was at the Manning trial, and the prosecution actually had to admit that, uh, yes, they would charge the New York Times the same way. Uh, in principle, of course, they're not actually doing it, but... Um brought the, said they would bring the same charges against the New York Times? Well, sure. I mean, if you go to the websites of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, um, other places that are trying to do serious investigative journalism right now, they will all have buttons that you can press if you want to go to a part of their website that allows you to make an encrypted anonymous submission. Uh, you know, this is a kind of submission that was pioneered by WikiLeaks. The, the technology, the tool is called SecureDrop, but it's now being used by the leading newspapers in the world. And so, again, it's not so easy um, to find an abstract, principled way to say that Assange is a criminal, um, but these other newspapers are complying with the law. So in the initial indictment of Assange, uh, although it's not used in the actual indictment, in the press release, the DOJ uh, called it hacking charges. Uh, and so there's clearly an effort to try to distance Assange from other journalists saying that he does things uh, differently, and do you think that's that's what this is about? Trying to make him look like not a journalist, and therefore not worth our defense. Well, sure, I think they'd like to do that. Look, if they had evidence that Assange himself had actually directly hacked into the U.S. government databases um, and exfiltrated the material, then they would have brought those charges against him, um, and those would be different than what most journalists do. Um, what they instead said was that he conspired with Manning to try to give her information that would help her get into other parts of um, uh, restricted government websites. But, but we know that that, in fact, never even occurred, that Manning had already turned over all the governments at issue before they even had that kind of exchange. So, but you're absolutely right. What the government is trying to do in step one um, is to split off Assange from the herd of journalists um, so that he won't be defended by um, other parts of civil society, establish the precedent 
that they can make publishing a crime, which they will then use, uh, or at least threaten to use, um, against other journalists who publish information that embarrasses them. Wow. We are talking with Ben Weisner from the uh, American Civil, Le- Civil Liberties Union, uh, Ed Snowden's lead attorney. Uh, ben, um, let me uh, go to a, a tape here of, of Assange uh, from, uh, I think, maybe a year and a half ago. I want to play this tape, and maybe you can explain uh, what these SAMs are uh, and how dangerous they are. Do you have that tape lined up? It's possible, depending on the shifts in U.S. politics, uh, that I would be sentenced to death. Probably not, uh, but that doesn't mean there's not a, a, a risk of a sort of living death. Uh, in the United States, there's something called SAMs, and for national security cases, terrorism cases, they put people in SAMs restrictions, which is you're in incommunicado detention. So even if you communicate something to the public, through your lawyer, the lawyer goes to prison. And this has happened in the United States. So uh, can you explain uh, to people who don't know what SAMs are? Yeah, so SAMs stands for Special Administrative Measures. um, And the government uses these kinds of measures in cases where they are afraid that the person who is on the inside can communicate dangerous messages to the people on the outside. The, The case that Julian was referring to where a prosecution was brought uh, involved a radical lawyer named Lynn Stewart, who represented uh, a convicted terrorist, the blind sheik, who was involved in the first World Trade Center bombing. And the government's allegation was that he had used his communication with Lynn Stewart in order to broadcast a message to his followers around the world. And following that case, um, people under Sam's um, are even more restricted. Um, But the idea is to, to cut them off from the ability to directly communicate with people around the world who might follow their guidance. So it's extremely isolating. Uh, In some cases, people can't see newspapers until weeks after they were actually published. He surely would not um, have access to the internet. Um, And so it would be cut off in that way as well. Uh, And yes, in order for lawyers to be able to go and see him, they would need to agree to be bound by these measures um, and to, you know, essentially restrict the communications that they could relay from him to the rest of the world. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if people like uh, Assange and Snowden, um, who ended up in U.S. prisons, would be subjected to those kinds of restrictions. And so speaking of uh, client-lawyer communications, uh, Assange's case has already had some really serious issues there. I'm wondering if, if you could comment on the, the first, the fact that Assange's U.K. lawyers have not had consistent uh, access to Assange in prison, and then the allegations currently being adjudicated in a Spanish court that uh, Assange was spied on in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, including what are supposed to be privileged legal conversations. Well, yeah, so I I have not been able to follow closely the issues that his UK lawyers have raised. Um, it should go without saying that the lawyers who are presenting him in an extradition proceeding should have whatever access to him they need. And, uh, you know, I'll pay more attention to that, but I don't have anything to add beyond what's been reported. Look, the other allegations are extremely serious. Um, You know, if it turns out to be the case that uh, Assange was under constant surveillance, including with his lawyers, and that that was done in any way at the direction of the United States government or the United States government has possession of conversations between him and his lawyers in that embassy, 
um, that's you know more than problematic. That's something that would be a, a serious issue if he were ever brought here for trial. It might actually you know be an issue that will help him in his extradition case. Um, I've read the same reports. I've seen the footage that's been posted online of him meeting with people. Um, uh, you know, obviously this is something that needs to be investigated thoroughly, and I hope that one day we'll get the full story. Well, Ben Weisner, any um, any last uh, thoughts about yes. the case of Julian Assange before we go? Yes, I mean this is this is something that I want to say that I think has not gotten enough attention, um, and that is that apart from the ordinary threats to press freedom that would come from any prosecution of a publisher, um, the fact that the U.S. government is arguing here that an Australian citizen located overseas is bound by the U.S. secrecy laws um, is to me quite outrageous and troubling in its own regard. Um, you know, as I said on the panel last week that you mentioned, Randy, um, in the last couple of months, we've seen the New York Times publish blockbuster reports with top secret documents from the highest levels of the Chinese and Iranian governments. And these were vital stories in the public interest about the treatment of the Uyghurs, uh, about political repression in Iran. And there is no doubt in my mind that the publication of these materials violated laws in both Iran and China. If those countries charged and then sought the extradition of the New York Times reporters and editors and publishers who put those out, um, we would laugh um, at the idea that our journalists should be subjected to criminal laws uh, for violating the secrecy rules of those countries. And yet no one is pointing to the absurdity um, that Assange has any kind of duty or obligation to the U.S. to keep it secret. Uh, and so to me, I think the media should be making even a bigger stink about this. I do think that um, in defense of the mainstream media here, um, most of the comments that I've seen since these charges have been brought um, have expressed concern. Um, uh, but I don't think people realize just how outrageous it is um, uh, that the U.S. would try to apply its criminal law in this way. Wow. Well, that's well said, uh, Ben Weisner of the ACLU. Uh, by the way, how is your client in uh, Moscow doing or in Russia? You know, he's in good spirits. Um, you know, he's playing with house money. This is someone who expected that he would spend the rest of his life locked up for what he did. And instead, he's living a meaningful life and making positive contributions. So, so this is someone um, who is very satisfied. And let me make a plug for his book, Permanent Record. Uh, even though the government is going after the profits, believe me, they would prefer to have you not read it than for them to get 40 cents on a hardcover. So buy the book. I'm going to buy the book. I don't care if it goes to the government. <laughs> it's worth buying. Right. And uh, I think it's information that needs to be disseminated. Uh, once again, Ben Weisner, thank you for all the great work that you've done over the years and uh, continue uh, with uh, your great work. Ben Weisner. Thanks, Randy. Once and again. thanks, Nathan. Thanks, right. Ben. Thank you for not mentioning Roger Stone. <laughs> I'm hanging up now. <laughs> All right. See you later. All right. Well, that was Ben Weisner. Um, I'm Randy Credico. This is I'm having some problems with my, I didn't sleep last night. All right. I'm, I'm like so anxious. It's this show, it's Credico. this show, Randy Credico. I can't even say my last <laughs> name. I'm so anxious. I haven't because I have three heavyweights on today. Ben Weisner. I've had uh, Max Blumenthal. Now I got like the heavyweight of the world in the civil rights movement. Seriously. The greatest uh, coming up, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, Dr. Cornell West, folks, so don't go anywhere. Going home across the sea. 
just going home Quiet like some still day I'm just going home It's not far, just close by Through an open door Lake all done, carried by Going to fear no more Mother's there expecting me Father's waiting too Lots of folks gather there All the friends are for pound, uh, he's one of the uh, greatest uh, individuals uh, in American history, uh, Paul Robeson. Oh, boy, I'll tell you, last night, it was like Christmas Eve when I was a kid waiting to, couldn't sleep because I, I wanted to get up and I wanted to, like, open up those presents uh, because I had Cornell West on today. That's the feeling I had last night. I couldn't sleep at all. Uh, Cornell West, what can I say? You know, trying to do a, a terse bio. You know, intro for Cornell West. It's it's like trying to uh, come up with a terse uh, bio on the uh, entire catalog of the Library of Alexandria. You just can't do that. You need a full you know show I mean? just for that. No, you need just uh, take me two weeks. Forget about it. You know, Cornell West is uh, like not only the pre preeminent civil rights uh, leader in this country. He is also the preeminent civil rights activist. And let me tell you. Cornel West is a combination of Frederick Douglass, Reverend Theodore Parker, William Blake, and John Coltrane, maybe a little McCoy Tyner there. What do you say to that, Cornel West, my good friend? <laughs> brother Randy, brother Randy, love you, love you. No, yeah. man, I salute the work you and the others have been doing, and we want to keep in mind our dear brother Stanley Aronowitz, you know, he, he's sick now, and I've been praying for him, and I hope he pulls through. But I do salute you, Brother Randy. I tell you, my brother. Well, you know, uh, Cornell, one of the greatest moments I've had in my life uh, really was uh, an eight-hour stint I did in a jail cell with you up in Harlem way back in 2011, uh, protesting stop and frisk, Mike Bloomberg's uh, conception. Those eight hours were so edifying. You know, not only, not only. We had a good time. Yeah. I want to tell you something. Nobody was able to to, uh, stump you on anything. You know that. Like you, we not only got a seminar from you on uh, the abolition movement, but also we went into like about a two hour like recording session, every tune from the 60s, and people <laughs> were trying to get, you know, well, Cornell's not going to know this one. You know everything from Curtis Mayfield to the Beatles to the Rascals, every song they threw at you, you knew the lyrics. Oh, we were having a good time raising our voices, Brother Carl, Dick, 
Yeah. We all of us together. The brother Jim, Rentos, we, we had a time, my brother. Yeah, that was uh, the one tune. It was a beautiful thing. <laughs> I, I just, I don't know if I should do this, but there is one tune. Do you have that lined up? This is the one tune that really shocked me that you knew the lyrics to this because you know, you're a jazz critic. I mean, you know everything about jazz and you know I mean, you know music, man. You know the history of music. But you knew the, you knew the lyrics to this song, which I couldn't believe. Let's just play a second of it. You got Why do you fill me up, fill me up, All right, that's enough. The foundations. The foundations. All right, that's enough. That's enough. The foundations. I couldn't believe it. Seriously, you knew the No, no. You know? Brother, I tell you, I, I, I'm just so glad that you're still in the world raising your voice with courage, man. And I'm glad you mentioned the uh, stop and frisk. Yeah. You see now people are overlooking the ways in which uh, Brother Bloomberg is a neoliberal gangster. Yeah. So that he actually, in terms of Wall Street, what he did with, to public education and six million young folk being stopped and frisked, Rights violated, 1.8% of those tied to any kind of criminal behavior. You can't just wipe that under the rug and appear as if somehow you're this grand progressive, you see. Right. Now, absolutely. Let me tell you something. You know who my guy is, the same guy who I supported in 2016, and he sounds like this. I want you to know that we're going to change this country 100%. And we got to, you know, the other day I saw you in Cedar Rapids. I do it the best Bernie Sanders in the world. And I've, I've got to follow Cornell West. Cornell West is going to introduce me. I got to follow this guy. This is not going to be easy. All right. I'm going to, I, I got to play. I, I, I took a 20, I took a 20 second pastiche from that speech from Cedar Rapids. I'm going to play it for you, man. Cause this people wow. have got to hear because I am supporting Bernie Sanders because he supports free speech. He supports whistleblowers and dig what you had to say the other day. If you haven't heard it. Widow, the fatherless, the motherless, the oppressed, the poor. I don't care where you are, no matter what color, no matter what sexual orientation, no matter what national identity, you are precious, you are priceless, which means that a life in Libya, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Ethiopia, a life in Guatemala, a life in Haiti, a life in Puerto Rico, a life in Tel Aviv, a life in Gaza, a life anywhere on the globe, has exactly the same value. Wow, that was powerful, man. That was powerful. The whole speech was powerful. Uh, so you're going around. It's amazing that you got a copy of that, though, brother. That's the first time I heard a copy of that. Oh, oh, are you kidding? I've spent the last three days preparing. I read Hope on a tightrope, all right? I read that book, Hope on a Tightrope, wow. uh, which wow. is a great book. I'm reading that along with this new book on... Um, uh, by Mullen on uh, James Baldwin. And the reason why... Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because um, uh, I was in... I know you visited Assange, and uh, I was there three Absolutely. times. I know. I was there three times. You were there with our our, our good friend, uh, Tavis Smiley, great, great, great guy and a, a brilliant uh, talent and journalist himself. Uh, but I no, was... indeed, indeed. And uh, so I was there three years ago, and he and I, he had posted... 
Baldwin uh, debating on Twitter, Baldwin debating uh, William F. Buckley on firing line. And so we started talking mm. about him. We started talking about James Baldwin the last time I was there. I was there three times over a couple of months. And, and talking about you, he, he brought up the, uh, the time that uh, you came in there. And then it just kind of like morphed into a conversation about the, um, about the civil rights movement. And then it morphed into the abolition movement. And I said to him, I said, you know what? I said, this is an angle that you've got to play. You've got to play this angle, Julian, I, you know, for PR purposes. You're a journalist, mm -hmm. all right? You're a journalist. Let's go back to the abolition writers, uh, people like Elijah Lovejoy, who went to yes. uh, Princeton, uh, Princeton Theological Prince, Seminary, Prince, Prince. right? Yes, he did. Right. Yes, and, he did. And died in Alton, Illinois. Yes, he did. By a bunch of thugs in 1837. That's his, right. His brother wrote a book called, um, uh, did a bio on him, which I have the original copy of from 1838, Owen Lovejoy. And the other one was oh, David, yes. David, David Walker, was another journalist who was killed. He was oh. poisoned. Uh, I'm we, teaching David Walker next week in my class at Harvard appeal to the colored citizens of the world is one of the great, great statements, but the indictment of American and imperial treatment of, uh, of, of black people, I'll tell you. He said that slavery was worse in the U.S. than it was anywhere in the history of the human race. The conditions That's were right. worse. And so he was poisoned. And, and people like he, Elijah Lovejoy said, you know what, Julian, they're going after you right now. They're actually going after you. Why don't you make that comparison? And he stopped me. He said, that's a false analogy. He said that those writers back then only angered and uh, got the rancor of uh, people uh, of the slave power and some of the merchants in the North that profited off of slavery, like Fernando Wood uh, here at Tammany Hall and those Boston merchants. But the rest of the uh, country uh, supported people like uh, Elijah Lovejoy. He says, what I do... Everyone gets offended. You know, you got the military offended, you got liberals offended, and you got you got uh, you know the DNC leaks have offended uh, the, the so-called uh, center right, center left, and so everyone. He says. So is that a false comparison uh, between Julian and the abolitionist? Well, writers? it's a wonderful, wonderful question. Keep in mind, my dear brother, that the abolitionist movement on the vanilla side of town, only had a few thousand folk. You had Quakers, you had Mennonites, William Lloyd Garrison, Lady Maria Child. It was always a very small movement. Now, of course, the abolitionists on the chocolate side of town, the slaves themselves, they wanted to be free, but they were locked in. No, but so, so they, it was small then, but I see my dear brother Julius's point, though. I mean, the people who really want to stand up for truth when it comes to disclosing the crimes of the American empire, the crimes of American militarism, liberals aren't going to go that far. No, they don't have that kind of courage. They're not going to go that far. So he's right that it's a much smaller group that want to stand for truth when it cuts across the board, be it the U.S. Army, be it the truths of the Democratic Party, be it truths about the Republican Party. People who want to stand up for that kind of thing, I mean, good God, you're going to have a uh, Brother Glenn Ford, Black Agenda Report, Margaret Kimberley, Paul Street, the Counterpunch. It's just Adolph Reed. It's just a small group, Brother Randy, yourself. It's just a small group in the nation that want to stand up for that kind of truth because it requires such a radical indictment of the whole system under which we live.
I see. Well, let me uh, ask you this. You were there for a couple of hours. You interviewed him for your radio show. Uh, and people, Absolutely. And people know Julian Assange from his work, the myth and all of that. Uh, what kind of impression as a human being did you get uh, in those three or four hours that uh, you were in his company? Oh, no. They, we, we had a wonderful time. We talked about the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. It was very clear that Brother Julian is a person of very deep moral convictions, political commitment, that he was fundamentally uh, committed to disclosing these truths, revealing these truths across the board. And, uh, of course, he's a human being like anybody else, so I'm sure he's got false horribles. But what came across to me is that he was a genuine freedom fighter, brother, very much so. And I think that this this kind of psychological torture that seems to be at, at play needs to end. I think that we need to cast another serious limelight on his situation, on his predicament and his plight. And I think there needs to be much wider and more intense support for him. I still stand very much in solidarity with my brother. And I'm so glad that your show is one that allows us to raise our voices to speak in this regard. And you know, Brother Randy, you and I, in part, just trying to put a smile on Brother William Cussler's face from the grave. Right. And <laughs> his voice would be the same thing. Howard's in the same way you saw the interview probably we just did in the, in the Boston Review. Yes, I did see ten, that. Ten years later. Ten well, years later. Yeah. Howard Zinn. We got to put a smile on Brother Howard Zinn's face as well. Same well, as true with Fannie Lou Hamer. Same as true with Ella Baker, you know. Yes, all of those uh, those greats. I mean, there were so so many. You know, Baldwin, of course, you, you did a... Um, an interview that that transformation of Baldwin, by the way, uh, politically, he kind of like uh, this guy Beaufort Bo- uh, Delancey, who uh, introduced him to jazz. How he went from gospel, oh, yeah. gospel yeah, to yeah, jazz. Yes. Beaufort, yeah, uh, yes, so the great Beaufort Delaney. Yeah, that's absolutely. it, right? So he changed Baldwin's life when Baldwin was very young. You know, brother Eddie Glaude has a new book out on Baldwin. You want to? I got it. Too. I got it. You got brother Eddie's book. It's worth yes. it. he, It's a masterpiece. Oh, it's unbelievable. I'm reading that and and hope on a tightrope at the same time. Well, <laughs> you know, and the reason why I bring it up is 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 the influence of jazz, the uh, revolutionary yes. spirit of jazz. Did that have the same kind of effect on you? Is that is that the? Oh, indeed, indeed, indeed. And you know, Ed Pavlik's wonderful book on and James Baldwin and the blues and jazz is also something to take a look at. He teaches down in, in University of Georgia. But no, but for me, it was rhythm and blues. One, I, one, I come out of the black church, so that I already had rich black music, rich music across the board in the church. We used to have Sly Stone playing every fifth Sunday from Vallejo in my church. So you know, we, we wait. We that's in California. Stone. That's in Sacramento, and he's from he's from Vallejo, Shiloh, Shiloh Baptist Church on the Chaco side of Sacto. That's right, my brother. That's it. Absolutely. I, I grew up in Southern California. I know you're from Tulsa, uh, and this yeah, is yeah. I was born in Tulsa, Tulsa, but I only stayed a few weeks. Only stayed a few weeks. Yeah, Margaret Ratner Kunstler. Yes. Margaret Ratner Kunstler and her kids just got back because it's the hundred year anniversary of uh, of uh, Black Wall Street there. Uh, so, oh, right, a hundred right. year anniversary, which is something we don't know about. I suppose that Julian Assange was around. Uh, none of the newspapers really reported uh, on Black Wall Street. That was... Oh, no. If Brother Julian was around, we wouldn't know the exact number of black people who were killed in that massacre. They still haven't counted the number of folk who actually were killed. Well, they know 5,000 were run out of town. 
They think it was somewhere between 500 and 1,000 who were murdered, but we just don't know. And again, you know, you got the uh, the news sources and the authorities that be hiding and concealing the truth. Right. They don't want people to know. So, Thank God for Brother Julius. Right, absolutely. I that that's absolutely true. Uh, Mar- Margaret Kunzer, uh, who says hello, and you interviewed her with Tavis Smiley. Oh yes, back. send her my love and respect, brother. Do you remember? Uh, I, I mean, in Tulsa, they, she said that she saw. Uh, the remains of some of these homes that were bombed. Yeah. And it, all yeah. she said, it was it was really eerie because all you saw were like steps. There was nothing else except for like the yeah, front steps. Exactly. Everything else was gone. And they're still discovering graves there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's real, brother. Yeah. Well, we didn't that's have... very, very real. <laughs> that's the kind of journalism. If they had that then, if somebody had done what Julian does right now and exposed the truth... That's right. I, I, you know, this, this trial that's coming up, this trial that's coming up, uh, possibly, he may be extradited to this country if, if uh, the Brits get their way. The U.S. is hell-bent on getting him here. And speaking of Mrs. Kunstler, I, I want to play this for you and how this not only relates not only relates to Assange, but other political prisoners like Mumia and like uh, our uh, Leonard Peltier and others, because there are countless in this country as well. But just take a listen to Bill Kunstler. This is after, this is just right after the uh, conviction of the Chicago 7 or Chicago 8. I suspect that better men than the world has known and more of them have gone to their death through a legal system than through all the illegalities in the history of man. Six million people in Europe during the Third Reich, legal. Sacco Vanzetti, quite legal. The Haymarket defendants, legal. The hundreds of rape trials throughout the South, where black men were condemned to death, all legal. Jesus, legal. Socrates, legal. And that is the kaleidoscopic nature of what we live through here and in other places. Because all tyrants learn that it is far better to do this thing through some semblance of legality than to do it without that pretense. Your thoughts, Brother Cornell? Well, that's, that's my dear brother. That's your dear brother, Brother I love me some William Kunstler, man. I'm telling you, he's a truth teller. Yeah. He's a justice seeker. He's absolutely right. In the name of the law, people have been treated barbarically, atrociously, murderously. And we have to always have a Socratic suspicion of any rule of law tied to structures of domination that's violating the human dignity of anybody here and around the world. That's what Brother Kunstler understood. I remember I was blessed to have a dialogue with him on television one time, man. 
and good God, we had a good time together. I, I, I got to travel with him when his uh, autobiography came out in 1995. So we went from New York to wow. Chicago, Chicago to D.C., to Seattle, to L.A. We were uh, bombarded by the JDL. They were throwing the rocks and uh, tomatoes and eggs at the car. Wow. And uh, it was really a great time. Uh, this, and he died later that year. His last... Um, his last public appearance was actually at Caroline's Comedy Club. I, I produced his show. Is that right? Yes. He went up there and, and he did like an hour. I'm going to send you the video. An hour. Dig this. One hour up there just telling stories about the Chicago 7 and everything else wow. that transpired uh, in his lifetime. Uh, and he got a standing ovation. And then he died a couple of weeks later. Erwin Corey was part of that as well. Uh, so, wow, wow. Uh, he was uh, really uh, a very special individual, as are you. You are just like the best. You are a combination. You know, you're one of those guys I look at. I say, he's like one of those guys from like uh, the Enlightenment, like Schiller or, or Jean-Paul Marat. I mean, you, you specialize or you're, you're so knowledgeable and, and done so much in your lifetime. 20 books you've written. You've edited 13. Uh, you're into philosophy, theology. Well, brother, you know. brother Randy, no man, we got to, we got to zero in on you. Do you know how rare it is to have such a profound comic talent that you have tied to revolutionary spirit? As you know, going back to Aristophanes, so many of the comedy, the comic people, they were transgressive, but in the end, they were still conservative because they wanted to restore the hierarchy, even as they poke fun at the ones at the top. Whereas your conception of comedy, you're able to Disclose the incongruity, show the hypocrisy, keep the humanity, which is always part and parcel of the humor, and then join social movements for fundamental social change. Wow. I mean, that's a rare kind of move, my brother. I'm telling you right now. Well, as, 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 great as, as great as Eddie Murphy is, he's not a revolutionary. No. He's not part of social movements. He's just a tremendous, great comic talent. So that to use comedy as a way that's connected to revolutionary change, you know how rare that is. Good, uh, baby George, George in some ways, George Carlin had some had some serious analysis of power, and he's a tremendous comic talent too. But you see the connection I'm making. You know how rare that is, brother Randy. I salute you, man. Well, that's what you're supposed to do in life, uh, Cornell. Is uh, as you said, as bad as things are, it's been worse in the past and so you got to just keep moving uh you know i keep looking at this assange case and i say my god uh, hope is there yeah. any hope and then yeah. i then i looked at this video of you being interviewed in this uh, james baldwin unpopular and there was a little piece there you talking about hope the same way nils Mel, uh, melzer the u.n uh, special uh, rapporteur on torture last week said don't look right. for the light be the light now i'm just going to play yes. this because i actually i actually grabbed that sound clip from last week do we have that Having hope is still too detached, too spectatorial. You got to be a participant. You got to be an agent. You keep on pushing, Curtis Mayfield said. Be a force for good, Coltrane said. Mississippi, goddamn, says Nina Simone. That ain't having hope. That's being a hope. 
courageously bearing witness regardless of what the circumstances is because you're choosing to be a kind of person of integrity to the best of your ability before the worms get your body. Boom. That's it. That's blues. It's a beautiful tradition. Wow. Can you, uh, can you expand on that a little bit about hope? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, hope is as much a verb as it is a virtue. Uh, hope is found in the moral motion, in the political movement, in the spiritual movements that allow us to keep our integrity intact, keep our soulfulness intense, and then connect it to other people who are struggling for freedom and justice and, and radical democracy. And you can that can be enacted in arts, it can be enacted in science, it can be enacted in the laboratory, it can be enacted in the barbershop, enacted in the street, on the jail, in the mosque, in the synagogue, in the church. But it has that fundamental organic solidarity with those who are suffering. Right. That's Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, uh, taught us, and he's absolutely right. Hypersensitivity to the suffering of others, catching hell in the language of Malcolm X and our solidarity with them. And that's what you do as a, as a grand artist, brother, and that's what I try to do well, as a uh, you know, writer and lecturer and speaker, man. Uh, you do it all. Your books are great. You know, I really love this book that I got just in preparation for this show, and that was uh, Hope on a Tightrope, which was written in 2008. I know you have Democracy Matters and Race Matters and many other books. Uh, people can find you at Cornell West. I just have one or two more questions, Cornell. I want to oh, ask sure. you— Oh, sure. You take your time. Take uh, your time, my brother. Uh, do I have time? Because I know you're running around doing a lot of things, including with your with Bernie Sanders. Is he going to let you do that much time with me? Is that what you're saying? Well, I got to get to California, Chicago, and then New Hampshire in the next day and a half, my brother. Oh, my. But I got time for you. All I right. got time for you. Oh, my God. I can tell you that. All right. Well, listen, I want to ask you about, you know, here you have Assange, the, um, that he's in this country. Uh, there's a lack of support, even though. All of his revelations, most of his work uh, exposes white countries, white-led uh, countries like the U.S. and the U.K., and their crimes committed in non, so-called non-white countries, uh, countries of color, whether it be Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Libya, Honduras, you name it. And, and so I see a lack, a dearth of support amongst black leaders and black politicians and black media. What do you ascribe that to? Well, you know, when you go back to um, the 1940s, you had a major break in the black freedom movement between Cold War liberals who were willing to become well-adjusted to the American empire, even as they fought for civil rights. When you agree with the fight for civil rights, being well-adjusted to the American empire meant you didn't say a word about militarism, didn't say a word about imperial policies. Then you had the left expression, Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois, Victoria Garvin, they were calling for decolonization of the third world, the, the support of resistance against the American empire, but also resistance against the Soviet empire or the Chinese empire or any other empire. And, and it was the second wave. It was the Du Boises and the Robesons and others who were criminalized and marginalized so that the very notion of black freedom was dominated by Cold War liberal black folk. Well, you jump up now to 2020, coming through the 
eighties and nineties all the way up to Obama, you get Cold War black neoliberals. Yeah. Black Congressional Caucus and others. They won't say a mumbling word about the drones being dropped in Libya and Afghanistan and Somalia and and, 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 and Pakistan and other places. They won't say a mumbling word about the surveillance. They won't say a mumbling word about what Brother Assad is, is disclosing and has disclosed over and over again. But they will say something about voter repression. They will say something about civil rights. So they're part of that Cold War liberal, neoliberal strand rather than that more revolutionary radical strand that's concerned about militarism. That's why Martin King is so very important. He broke with the Cold War liberals and said, I have a critique of Vietnam. I have a critique of U.S. policy in Latin America. I have a critique of U.S. cooperation with the South African government. I have a critique of U.S. occupation of the Dominican Republic. I have a critique of the way the United States is treating Haiti and so forth. So you get that internationalism that is pushed to the margins. And in 2020, those of us who are part of the legacy of Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois, Victoria Garvin, Martin King. This is exactly what uh, Juma Barack is doing in such a powerful way with the, Alliance, the Black Alliance for Peace, that they are representative of the Robeson and the Du Bois tradition in terms of having a critique of U.S. imperial power. Wow. I, I, I got to tell you, bring up Robeson and... and uh others uh from his era that did stand up and that would be langston hughes uh did oh, and yeah. uh, so did uh was it uh, Wright? uh what's uh richard was it richard wright right yeah right. the other yeah, great yeah, writer richard yes. wright. yeah so uh they were you know they were named you know orwell like name names and and all three of those were on a list that he gave to what was called the um, Information Research Department, which was a wing of the MI5 or MI6 back in the 50s. You know, Orwell like became very conservative and, and was naming names. And uh, Robeson, just uh, because we, we've been, we've been uh, focusing our music today. We had Nina Simone, who I know you, you're a big fan of. You brought her up. Nina yeah. Simone, uh, she was a rebel. Give us... Uh, Give us a, a, she goes hand in hand with Lorraine Hansberry. Yeah. Lorraine Hansberry, they were very close, yeah. very tight. And, and, and Robeson. So give us, because um, most people don't know uh, the kind of sacrifices that Paul Robeson went through, the kind of uh, repression, basically, yeah. and, and, and yeah, the blacklisting. Just uh, in, in a nutshell, uh, give us a, a little bio on Robeson for those who don't know out there. Well, Paul Robeson is one of the great freedom fighters of the 20th century, born in Princeton. Uh, he was turned down by Princeton University, Phi Beta Kappa of Rutgers, graduated from Columbia Law, went to Broadway, worked with the greatest American playwright, Eugene O'Neill, uh, uh, and then joined the revolutionary wing of the freedom movement. So he went all around the world. He fought with the Irish against the British. He was there in Spain, the Civil War against the fascists. He was there in, in Alabama. 1939, he was the most famous Negro in the whole world, having enacted Othello on the stages of London as well as New York. And by 1954, he's under house arrest at 4645 Walnut Street, living in his, mother, in his sister's house. He's unable to have any access to resources. His job is shut down. He visits Du Bois, who's also under a whose passport has been taken away in, in Brooklyn, and they work together 
along with Lorraine Hansberry and a few others. John Henry Clark is another great one there as well. So Robeson goes from being the most popular Negro in the whole world to being one of the most hated black freedom fighters in the American empire uh, in a matter of 14 years or so. He dies in 1976. And very few people even knew he was alive, my brother. Yeah, well, uh, I knew he was alive. You know, I, I, we shall never forget him. No. We shall never ever forget uh, our dear brother Paul uh, Rose. Absolutely not. And there are other uh, great singers uh, of that era. Uh, Ethel Waters was. Uh, one oh, of the Ethel best. too. Yeah, yeah. and she and Harold Arlen. Yeah, yeah. Great uh, Jewish brother from Buffalo. Really, Sondheim's favorite. So some from Buffalo. He's the son of a cantor. No kidding. Kind of a cancer, but when he wrote, when he wrote that stormy weather, ooh, well, no, we you, could God, let alone, let alone the, over the rainbow, you know, all the great songs for Wizard of Oz. But they were very close. Yeah. And, all right. Uh, Errol. Yeah. It, it, very close. <laughs> Yeah, um, another uh, thing I wanted to ask you, Cornell, I, I saw you actually started um, organizing protests when you were, so this is like, you've been doing this since you were a kid. Your mother was a teacher, uh, and yeah. uh, how did you, yeah. in that part of the country, uh, Northern California, Sacramento, not actually a hotbed for radicalism, uh, how was it, how were you uh, treated when you were organizing these protests back then? Well, it was when Brother Martin got shot, though, man. We had to do something. I was, and uh, we became part of a movement to make sure that they had black studies in all the high schools in Sacramento. So we had a massive boycott. We just shut down the high schools. and said, if you're interested in the quest for truth, you're going to come to terms with the truth and the suffering of not just one side of the country, but the whole country. Black folk, indigenous peoples, white poor, brown poor, across the board. And uh, that was the beginning of it. When I, when I, you know, I went to Harvard, worked with the Black Panther Party breakfast program, and uh, prisons. I never joined the Black Panther Party because I've always been a Jesus-loving, free black man. I've always been tied to my own Christian faith, and my brothers and sisters in the Panther Party were uh, secular brothers and sisters, deeply atheistic and agnostic. And right. so I was always willing to work closely with them, but I, I wasn't going to give up my religious uh, faith to be part of any organization uh, you, but that was just the beginning beginning of it but it's a matter of just trying to be be true to the best who came before man you know what i mean yeah well you've done quite a job over the last i mean i've seen you everywhere I, you know here's a statement that you made i think this is in hope um uh, on a tightrope it says <clears throat> when ordinary people wake up elites begin to tremble in their boots they can't get away with their abuse. They can't get away with subjugation. They can't get away with exploitation. They can't get away with domination. It takes courage for folks to stand up. Mm, Do you remember singing yeah. that? Yeah. No, oh, no, indeed. Indeed. It's like Sly Stone. Stand. You've been sitting much too long. There's a permanent crease in your right and wrong. Stand. There's a midget standing tall in the giant. Beside him about to fall, stand as a cross for you to bear things to go to if you going anywhere. Stand, that's Sly Stone saying stand. Yeah. Stand for poor people. Stand for working people. Stand for those trans phenomenon called the wretched of the earth. Yeah. Stand wow. with them, alongside them. Go down swinging. Well, now I know why you know the lyrics to Buttercup. Uh, because, <laughs> I mean, you know, Buttercup, you knew that. That's when Nixon wasn't... 
Nixon was president, my fellow Americans, there's a guy by the name of Cornel West out there, and we're gotta have we're gonna have to stop him. Cornel West is a dangerous man. And then Reagan said the same thing. Reagan said, there's a guy by the name of Cornel West. I want you to get rid of him, all right? Uh, he's getting under my skin. So uh, let's uh, go get him now. I, uh, I uh, want to get back to Assange for a minute uh, before we go. Yes, Cornel West, uh, Cornel, uh, the, uh, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, they all want him. Why do they all want him? Well, he's a truth teller. He's a justice seeker. He's going to pull the cover, has already pulled the veil of a whole lot of barbaric activities of those institutions. And the sad thing is, and this holds for Democratic uh, administrations and Republican administrations, that it could be Obama or Bush or Trump, that when it comes to the war crimes committed in terms of dropping drones on innocent people or babies or in terms of not wanting or providing cover-up for those crimes, that there's a consensus against my brother Assange of both parties. They don't want that kind of disclosure. And that's why what you're doing is so important, standing up with him. And that's why I always want my voice to be in solidarity with him in terms of his willingness to speak the truth, disclose the truth, and seek justice for all. You, you, you realize the crimes that, that, that were, had been revealed by WikiLeaks, there's been no accountability, no responsibility of anybody taking being, being in any way rendered a just treatment given the kind of crimes committed. Well, None whatsoever. Nothing, and and not not the, the Democratic National Committee uh, for what they did to Bernie uh, in in two thousand and sixteen. They they probably by rigging that election cost us that like, cost the Democrats that election because Bernie would have won in two thousand and sixteen. And all of these liberals are upset that Trump won, and they're blaming it on Assange. For are you are we? better off knowing what the DNC did in 2016 and what it seems like Absolutely. they're trying to do again right now? Absolutely. It's got to be transparency. But you notice now that the elites of the Democratic Party, they call for transparency all the time. But when it's time to enact it, when it's time to execute it, they pull back. They're because those... those truths are too undermining of their claims, my brother. That, that speech that uh, he gave uh, Bernie the other day, talking about the prison industrial complex, talking about the, um, the war industrial complex, military industrial complex, uh, private prisons, he did the whole gamut there. Uh, the insurance companies, that was one of the boldest speeches I have ever heard in my entire life. I mean, that bordered on, on the, um, the speech that Martin Luther King gave, uh, the uh, drum major instinct. That kind of speech can get him in trouble, you know. Well, he's been giving that speech all around the country. You've got Brother Matt, who's, uh, Matt Dust, who's been writing some powerful stuff for his foreign policy. you got Sister Nina Turner, who's, who's been there from the very beginning. Of course, you got Sister Jane, his wife, who's an intellectual, uh, like Nina uh, on their own, and, and like Matt, all of them in their own right. That he's been giving that kind of speech shaped by the kinds of sensibilities, the visions, the analysis of all three of those and others. And that's one reason why his call for solidarity 
around porn working people against Wall Street elites and against imperial elites in the military-industrial complex. Very, very important, my brother. Yeah. And this is true, as you know, in regard to the Middle East, in regard to our precious Palestinian brothers and sisters. Yes. That he's not talking about any kind of anti-Jewish hatred. He's talking about a hatred of occupation, a hatred of Israeli occupation, a hatred of subordination of peoples, and an acknowledgement of the dignity of both Palestinians as well as Israeli folk. But you got to end occupation. You have to have self-determination in the region. The elites, though, in the Democratic Party, people like uh, Paul Begala, uh, Nira Tandon, uh, and and Bakari Sellers, man. Where does he come on? Who is this guy, Bakari Sellers? Well, you know, his father's one of the great freedom fighters of the 1960s, Brother Cleveland. Oh, he was one of the first to come out against the war in Vietnam, was working closely with Stokely Carmichael. But Brother Bakari's moved toward the center, you know, and he's now a, uh, he, 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 he's a uh, elite within the Democratic Party apparatus. And uh, we got to keep him honest, old Brother Bakari. We got to keep him honest like anybody else. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, uh, Cornell West, uh, before we go, um, I, I really want to thank you because I, I said, can I get you for 10 minutes? And you've done 35, 37 minutes, and I really appreciate Brother, this that. Is, what, but what you, what, what you were doing is just so crucial, important, indispensable. And as you know, I, I've, I've always wanted to be able to spend time on your show. I've been running here, running there, uh, running here, running here. So now that we get a chance, we just stretched out for 35 minutes or so, and I have enjoyed Every moment of it, my brother. All right. I'm going to, before we get into this Ode to Joy um, rendition by Paul Robeson, um, wow. we are, which was written by, you know, it's a, an ode by uh, Friedrich Schiller. Did you know that? Yes. Okay, you knew that. At the very end of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Yes, absolutely. And then the one we just played, Going Home, uh, the music is by Dvorak. Is Ninth wow. Symphony. Wow. So... Uh, before we go to that, I just want to get a closing, the paration on um, on behalf of um, our dear brother Julian Assange, who is inside one of the most disgusting, rancid, squalid prisons on the planet, and that is a place called Belmarsh. Uh, a little shout out to him because he definitely is going to hear about this. Oh, when you tell my dear brother Julian, just like when I gave him a hug there in London. Then I'm giving him a hug. I send my love, my respect, my solidarity. I want him to know that there's people outside who are pulling for him. I'm the Christian praying for him. And then I know it's tough. I don't have, I can't even imagine how difficult it is. But you have a spirit inside of you. You have a strength. You have a resilience. You have a stamina that the world already has seen manifest. Continue to manifest that as we continue to support you to make sure that justice is, in fact, enacted for you for your release oh god bless you my dear friend and um i can't tell you how um important it is for you to be a part of this show and to uh add your voice in support of julian assange uh really was a pleasure uh, dr west and we're going to go out with ode to joy you can stay on and listen to it for a few seconds oh no i'm gonna stay on and listen to it but uh I support you, though, brother. Love you, brother. Randy. I love you, love too. You, We're going to play Ode to Joy. We'll be right back with some closing thoughts.
Praise to joy the God descended, daughter of Elysium, ray of mirth and rapture blended, goddess to thy shrine we come. By thy magic is united, what stern custom parted white. All mankind are brothers plighted, where thy gentle wings abide. Schöne Götterfunken, Tochter aus Elysium. Wir betreten Feuertrunken, himmlische dein Heiligtum. Deiner Zauber binden wieder, was die Mutter streng geteilt. Alle Menschen werden Brüder, wo dein sanfter yeah, Frieden all three offered something. All right, that was a great Paul Robeson. What a great show. Um, get out there and support Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders supports freedom of speech. He supports whistleblowers. I'm going to be supporting him. Uh, once again, I did a 48-hour uh, marathon comedy and music show in Brooklyn for Bernie in uh, 2016. One of the very few candidates to speak out against the use of the Espionage Act against Assange. Yes, he definitely Great has. To see. And it's good. He and Tulsi Gabbard, that's it. But Tulsi's uh, not uh, in a position that he's in where um, he's he's got a chance to win. And uh, like I said, he ha like you just said, he has spoken out. He has. I don't think we should use the Espionage Act against Julian Assange. That's what he said. Something like that. But uh, I want to thank uh, Francis, the engineer here, man. He rocks, man. Francis, thank you very much, man. You are the best. And I want to thank uh, NYC Podcasting, nycpodcasting.com, uh, the best uh, podcasting studios in the city. And that means the world. I want to thank you, Nathan. Nathan, just give us... Um, uh, once again, recap of what's happening next week. Yeah, just for New Yorkers in, in Queens at uh, CUNY Law School, which is just at the Court Street Station stop there. Um, we're having a great panel for Assange. Max Blumenthal, who we heard from, will be there, along with Renata Avila, uh, a lawyer who's advocated for and with Assange and WikiLeaks. Jim Goodale, who argued for the New York Times' right to publish the Pentagon Papers. Uh, and Glenn Ford, mentioned by Cornell West yes. there. We did a benefit together. Report. We did a benefit together for uh, BAR, for Bar Black Agenda Report. Cornell and I, like three or, seven or eight years ago, up there at uh, Columbia. And Glenn is great. That's going to be a great panel. So you got Glenn, you got, you've got Renata Avila, who's... Uh, Who's one of Assange's uh, attorneys, and you got Max Blumenthal and who and, and Goodell. And then Goodell. What a what a panel that's going to be. You're going to have some uh, video from uh, Noam Chomsky. Then we have yeah, never before seen videos, new interviews with Chomsky and Dan Ellsberg, and we're going to hear from Alice Walker. Oh, that's going to be a super show. So, so how do people 15th, get there? February fifteenth at two p.m. Uh, go to defend.wikileaks.org/events for details. Um, but yeah, easy to get there in the subway, just a, a short ride from Manhattan or Brooklyn. All right. Um, February great. 15th, 2 yeah, p.m. at, 2 at CUNY Law All School. Right. And, and what's the website that they can find that in so case they didn't get defend that? Defend.wikileaks.org slash events.
Say that again. Defend.wikileaks.org slash events. Okay. Should I give me your uh, cell phone number too? No. Oh, yeah. Pass no. that out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So, folks, uh, once again, I want to thank uh, everybody involved in this show. There's also, uh, like I said earlier, every Thursday at 430 in, in front of, and it's very important, in front of uh, Grand Central, there is a vigil for Assange and Manning and other political prisoners, but primarily it's for Assange and Manning, and I, I, I believe, and it's it's really uh, quite, it's getting big, and the more people that show up, the better. So get there, and uh, I think that's about it. I want to thank uh, Chris Agee, and I want to thank uh, Covert Action Magazine, uh, Jeffrey Abrams, my good friend Jeffrey Abrams, who's a supporter of this uh, show, and uh, all the others. Uh, we uh, we need support, so uh, please, uh, you know, help us continue. We're going to London to do this show, so uh, help out on that website. Uh, it's called the CovertActionMagazine.com, and we'll see you next week with Renata and Max Blumenthal right here so there'll be no phone calls all right once again thank you very much and we're going to close with um with another paul robeson classic and this is uh, the ballad john brown Oh, God.